in our study of the last major division of the book of Leviticus, which is called by many scholars, as I've said, the Holiness Code. The Holiness Code. As we've seen, it's called this because in it, God mainly focuses on the practical inward holiness of the heart that also must be found in those who have been otherwise called holy in a covenantal or a ceremonial sense. The God of Israel, who His utterly and completely pure and piercing lights, all the analogies you could think of to describe holiness, will also have His people be completely holy as well, not just covenantally and not just ceremonially, but especially inwardly in the heart. And that is really the stress of this last section of Leviticus. So far in the Holiness Code, we've seen God give commandments about things that perhaps you might expect to find in an area about practical holiness. What I mean by that is he, we find him focusing on certain areas of life which must be crucially guarded if God's people are to be holy. To say it another way, while of course all sin is abhorrent to God and all sin is harmful to God's people, yet there are certain linchpin areas of life, certain institutions which if those become corrupted, the damage, the effect, and the spread of sin is much further reaching. We've seen that these areas are covenant fidelity to Yahweh alone and avoiding idolatry, the nurture and protection of marriage and the family, the integrity of Israel's spiritual leadership. If those areas are intact, holiness will flourish in Israel. If they are done, she will rot either from the bottom up or the top down. Now, all these things, as I said, are things you might perhaps expect to find in an area of Scripture called the Holiness Code, focused on practical inward holiness. Then you come to chapter 23, which is fundamentally, as I'll argue later, about the Sabbath, but it's also about the various feasts, weeks, celebrations of the Lord. And perhaps at first, the whole chapter kind of seems out of step with what has come before it. What I mean by that is that God has been emphasizing practical holiness in all these linchpin areas of life. And then you come to a place about feasts and days and weeks. You have to wonder, or at least I did, right? What I want us to really wrestle with today is, why is this here in the holiness code? Why did God put this here? The other stuff kind of makes sense at first, but why this here? Now, I don't mean by that, what is God trying to teach us about all these days and feasts in and of themselves? That's a separate question, and it's one that in many ways we've largely already answered. We've looked at a lot of these feasts in Exodus. We looked also at the Day of Atonement earlier in the middle of Leviticus, right? Suffice to say, it's all about Jesus in one way or another. I know I, I used to have a professor who would say in theology, God, Jesus, Bible. He'd say in Sunday school, if you have at least one of those three, you're probably going to get the answer right, right? God, Jesus, Bible. Well, Jesus does happen to be the answer. He is the meaning of all the festivals and all that. It all points to him in one way or another. For example, Paul says in Colossians 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival 
or a new moon or a Sabbath. All things related to the Jewish calendar under the law and all of which are found here with the exception of the new moon celebration which is found in the book of Numbers. Nevertheless, Paul says, let no one judge you for not keeping these now that the law has been abrogated. Why? These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the typological substance of these feasts and days, suffice to say, in one word, we could say Jesus. That's the immediate point of it all. But it really is a different question, though, we want to ask now, and one that I want us to explore today, which is, but why is all that here in the holiness code? Perhaps to state it another way, we've seen the crucial link between Israel's holiness and the avoidance of idolatry. That makes sense. We've seen the crucial link between holiness and the protection of marriage and the family. That makes sense. It also makes sense, the connection between holiness and her leadership. What's the connection between Israel's holiness and her Sabbaths and her feast days? The question we want to wrestle with is how is that a protection of holiness? It's in the holiness code. In fact, you can notice something very interesting. If you look on the back of your order of service, um, I, I put a chart in here, and Jason was like, yes, charts. Um, the term Sabbath or other language from the word Shabbat, it could be a verb, it could be a noun, it like skyrockets in the holiness code, lang in the holiness code section of Leviticus. Before that, it's virtually not mentioned at all, but it's really hammered hard in the holiness code. Why? Furthermore, an even more important question we want to ask is, this, is what does this teach us about the connection between the church's holiness and her Sabbath day, the Lord's day? We've seen the link between the church's holiness and avoiding idolatry. We've seen the link between the church's holiness and prioritizing marriage and family. We've seen the importance of holiness in the leadership of the church. But what about her holiness and the Sabbath day? That's what we want to, that's what we want to wrestle with today. Now, to let the cat out of the bag, as part of the first answer to the first question, what is the link between Israel's holiness and her Sabbath slash festival keeping? The connection between them, which though at first is perhaps not apparent, yet afterwards it's blindingly obvious. And I felt that way. I say blindingly obvious because I was like, what is this all about? And after I studied, I was like, well, duh, of course that's what it is about. It's this. Israel's likeness unto God in holiness depends not ultimately, not ultimately, on their own obedience and their own carefulness to obey a set of laws, but rather on God himself, who is not just the standard of their obedience, the goal to which they are to aim, as he says, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, but more than that, the source of their holiness. As he says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. In other words, What's the relationship between the Sabbath and holiness and all that? Well, that's when you come to worship God, and God is holiness. Since it was on these Sabbaths and these feast days that they came into his presence, they would then drink, as it were, 
from the source of holiness. The Sabbath was their main day for growing in holiness. She might know all the laws well, but if she's not coming regularly to the source into the presence of holiness itself, it will be only a matter of time until she forsakes the law. Michael Morales, in his excellent book on Leviticus titled, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? Which I encourage you to get. It's very mind-blowing. He's one of those guys who makes these crazy connections, but I'd say like 95% of the time he's right, and he's kind of like a big picture guy, but, but he has a, a really good book. It's, it's all on Leviticus, and he says this. This is his answer for why the Sabbaths and the feasts are in the middle of the holiness code. The program for Israel's sanctification was not founded merely upon a set of laws but rather was rooted in the regular entrance into God's presence to worship. Just as basking in the sun's light brings color, warmth, and health to the body, so basking in God's presence brings holiness. Therefore, he concludes, because fundamentally worship is entering into God's presence, drawing near to God through the way he has opened, Israel's holiness was contingent upon their Sabbath engagement with God, by entering into the Sabbath regularly, Israel was steadily to grow in its calling. That's why he said it's like, duh. It's like, God is holiness. Of course, it's in the holiness code. That's when you come into the presence of holiness. So interesting, brothers and sisters. So often when we look and think about growth in terms of holiness, we understand it in terms of growing in greater discipline in certain spiritual disciplines and acts of worship. That's true to a large extent. I'm not, I'm not denying that. If by that you mean a greater discipline in certain acts of worship whereby you commune with God who is the source. If you forget that last part, you do not grow in holiness. You can't take God out of the equation of holiness. He is holiness. John Owen has something to say about this in The Mortification of Sin. He explains why certain people never grow in holiness. Though outwardly, you might look at them and see them as like, whoa, that guy must surely be holy, right? He says it's because essentially they leave God out of the equation. He says, praying, fasting, watching, meditation, these all have their use in the business at hand. I'm not denying these things have their use, he says. But, whereas all these disciplines are to be looked on as streams, they look on them as the fountain. It's like they take God out of the equation. They take the source of holiness out and think, if I do these and grow, this is where holiness comes from. And then he has some very <laughs> biting things to say. He says, if they fast so much, and pray so much, and keep their hours and times, the work is done, they think. In a word, they have sundry means to mortify the natural man, as to the natural life here we lead, but none to mortify lust and corruption. Because all that comes from God. You can't just look at these things as though they're the fountain. You can't take God out of the equation. And so it makes sense that Israel has to regularly come to the source to grow in holiness. And this happens 
on the Sabbath day. Now, as far as how I would like us to go about this today, I really only want to focus on a few verses of the whole chapter. Um, I'm a guy who loves to just go through the whole chapter. You guys know that. I'm really going to make uh, have, have a much narrow, narrower focus, kind of really only focus on the Sabbath. I think I'm justified in doing that, first of all, because although each of these festivals is given by God for a reason, yet we have looked at most of them largely already in Exodus and so far in Leviticus. Secondly, as I said in the very beginning, I think the real emphasis in many ways of the whole calendar under the law is the Sabbath itself. For example, Gordon Wenham says, The sabbatical principle, meaning one in seven, informs all the laws about the festivals. There are seven festivals in the year. Passover, unleavened bread, weeks, solemn rest day, that's the day he gives it, the day of atonement, booths, and the day after booths. During these festivals, there were seven days of rest in total. The majority of the festivals occur in the seventh month of the year. Every seventh year is a Sabbath year. After 49 years, or seven times seven years, there was a super sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee. Through this elaborate system of feasts and sabbatical years, the importance of the Sabbath was underlined. And so if we just focus on the Sabbath, its purpose, what was to be done on that, we grasp the underlying principle of the calendar as a whole, and much of what is done on those days will also be explained to us as well. Third and lastly, I just want to focus on the Sabbath today because that is the one aspect of the calendar of the Old Testament that has carried over after the abrogation of the law, namely one day in seven still being kept and set aside for the worship of God. Our confession says that is moral and perpetual. The only thing that has changed is which day it falls upon. That is ceremonial or positive. That has switched to the first day of the week in light of Christ fulfilling his work, but it does still carry over, okay? Well, let's go ahead and look at our text now. Let's explore how the Sabbath is related to holiness, relate it to us, and then we'll close with some application, okay? The first thing I want us to see is that the Sabbath is related to holiness insofar as the Sabbath is the day of worship and worship sanctifies since you become like what you worship. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3. This is kind of our main passage for this part. Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day, it is a, a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Here, I would say, we see what the heart of the Sabbath is, what it is all about in terms of its purpose, namely worship. I said this uh, earlier in Sunday school, but so often, you know, if you were to find a, a blog or you were to read a book about what the Sabbath is all about, so much of the discussion, and the discussion is very legitimate in its own place, 
but so much of the discussion centers on what you can do and what you can't do. And some people think you can do some things, and other people say, no, you can't do those things, and vice versa, right? If, however, we asked the more important question, if we asked that beforehand, it would make a lot of that later discussion needless, and it would clarify so much if you put it in a broader discussion. Namely, not what can or can we not do, but what are we to do? What's the purpose of the day in total? The answer in Scripture for that is that we are to rest, we are to cease from our labors, that we might be freed up to worship. It is partly that we be refreshed. We live in a fallen world. It's hard. It's good to have rest for your body and mind, but that's not the only reason. It's more larger than that, that we might stop that we might engage in worship. If we keep that in mind, it answers a lot of other questions about what you can and cannot do. Can you enjoy recreations on the Lord's Day? You know what the Reformed answer to that is? It might surprise you, especially in light of the fact that our own confession says not only are we to cease from our worldly employments, but from recreations as well on the Lord's Day. However, if you read more deeply, if you read, take a broader spectrum, not that this is opposed to that, you'll see that they did allow certain recreations on the Lord's Day. Yes, even the English Puritans. Some people will say, no, that's what they did on the continent, but not the English Puritans. Oh, really? Let me read some English Puritans for you. Let me read some Westminster divines. Whatsoever recreations and exercises of body and mind are necessary for the better sanctifying of the Lord's day and the enabling of us to perform with more cheerfulness, strength, and courage the holy worship of God, then we may use. And so far as they uh, serve to further and in no wise hinder God's holy worship, and the immediate works and duties thereof. So if you, if you have that in mind, it informs the whole question, and it really changes it. It's not, can we have recreations on the Lord's Day? It's, does this recreation hinder or replace worship, or does it further it? If it furthers it, it's fine. In fact, you might even say it might be sinful to not engage in it, since that's the goal. If it hinders it, no. The bigger question is, what's the purpose of the day? And the day is about worship. Well, how do we see this then in the text itself? How do we see that resting and ceasing from labor is here for the purpose of worshiping? I would say we say it in several, several ways. For example, in verse 3, if you have the ESV, it'll have a little phrase that says a solemn rest, a solemn rest. This is the Hebrew word Shabbaton, Shabbaton. The word in Hebrew Shabbat means simply to stop or to cease. It's not necessarily an overtly spiritual thing. You might read a passage in Hebrew where it's like, and so-and-so is chasing so-and-so in his chariot and he stopped. It's the word Shabbat. It's not necessarily spiritual, okay? It can just mean to cease 
And if you're ceasing from labor, by implication, you are resting. This word shabbatono is more specific than that. It's a very unique form, and it probably communicates the special nature of this day of rest. It's not an ordinary rest, but it's a special resting for a special purpose, which is why the ESV translates it a solemn rest. It's trying to get at that somehow. For example, not, not a reformed hardcore Sabbatarian lexicon, okay? This is, this is the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon for the Old Testament. I don't even know if they're reformed at all, okay? So don't think, Pastor Ryan, you're just twisting the sources, okay? This is all it says. It describes it as a rest that is, quote, to be observed strictly and to be celebrated in a special way. That's the meaning of Shabbaton. It's special. It has a special purpose, which I would say is worship. We see this also with the word that often accompanies Shabbaton, as well as the regular word Shabbat, and that is the word Kodesh, or holy. It is a rest, to be sure, but it is a holy resting. Remember, in Scripture, if something is holy, it's almost always, well, it, it's always set aside for a special purpose, but it's often related to the worship of God. And so if you have a resting that is holy, it's a holy rest, it's for a special purpose, I would say, namely the worship of God. Furthermore, we see that the purpose of the rest is worship in the term right next to solemn rest. Look in the ESV, right after it, it says, a holy convocation, holy convocation. You could say a holy gathering, a holy... The word is like to call together. It's like an assembly. It's basically like our word church in many ways. Now, that little phrase is important because, again, it tells us what the average Sabbath was supposed to look like. Namely, there was some kind of gathering, convocation of the people of God to worship God. This is not the kind of corporate worship that would take place at the temple. The law is very clear. You can't sacrifice wherever you wanted to. That can only happen in the temple. There are certain things you can only do there. However, this clearly is not a national convocation. It's something else. How do we know that? Well, look at the following phrase. In all your dwellings. That's much broader than Jerusalem. Some kind of gathering is supposed to take place throughout Israel on the average Sabbath day. John Gill notes, Other feasts were kept in the sanctuary, but this regular Sabbath was not only observed there and in their synagogues, but in their private houses or wherever they were, whether traveling by sea or by land. And the only qualifier I would kind of add to Gill although it's not totally a qualifier, is that people would say, well, synagogue practice did not happen until after the exile. That may be true. That may not be the case, right? I think, however, that doesn't mean that what we see here does not kind of imply something along the lines of a synagogue. What do you have? There's some kind of a gathering in their dwelling places. Okay, don't call it a synagogue, Call it some kind of an assembly 
It's an assembly wherever they live, in their homes, in their villages and towns, to worship God, okay? Lastly, we see that worship... uh, (laughs) I got these mixed up when I typed this. We see that resting is for the purpose of worship because on the other feast days of the Lord, even though they are not Sabbaths of the seventh day, yet people are likewise to not do any work on them And the reason is because that's when they're worshiping God and offering sacrifices. In fact, these days are sometimes referred to as Sabbaths, though they're not on the seventh day, in the sense that no work was to be done, and it's when God was to be worshiped in a holy convocation. So, for example, look at verses 7 through 8. This is the first and last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And just know, I got really confused about this. It took me a while to figure this out this week. First and last, don't think Sunday and Saturday, okay? It's, um, it's totally different from the exact days of the week. This has to do with the phases of the moon, and that's their, their calendar was lunisolar, okay? It's a whole thing. You can ask Dennis about what that means or something. I'm sure he'll tell you. Um, first and last, just like our first and seventh day of the month are not necessarily starting on a Sunday and all that. It's, it's like that, okay? So these are just the days of the feast, okay? On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. So notice, on each day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there were seven in total, they were to offer food offerings. But it was only on the first and the last day of the feast when they did no work. Why? Because that whole day was devoted to worship, and they had a holy convocation on that day. There's no convocation mentioned on the days in between. We see the same pattern with the other feasts. If it's a day of rest, it was a day of convocation. That's why if you were to scan throughout this whole chapter, most of the time when you see the term holy convocation, frequently after that it says, you shall not do any ordinary work. The cessation from work is that you might engage in worship. In fact, it's interesting, in one of the Jewish targums, targum is like an Aramaic um, uh, commentary, and I know I've been talking about this lately, because John Gill got me all into this, and you guys are just going to have to suffer through it, okay? We're, we're going to be talking about Targums from now on, okay? But they're kind of like commentary translations of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic by Jews. And they're funny because it's, you, get the, you get the feeling with the Targums that they're nervous that you're not going to get it. So they figure, they kind of like, they help you out. They kind of use the what we call the foot iron in golf, right? They kind of They help you out a little so you understand. They often make explicit what is implicit in the text. And you see them do this in this passage, particularly in verse 32. Look at it says of verse 32 of the Day of Atonement. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. The Jerusalem Targum says, It is a Sabbath and a time of rest, for you to humble your souls. Elsewhere, I mean, it's implied. It makes it explicit. This is the purpose why you're ceasing and you're resting, for you to worship God 
on this day. So all that to say, the purpose of the resting is for worship. Now, the second part of this equation is that worship sanctifies because you come, you become like what you worship. There are all kinds of interesting ways we could point this out in Scripture. I won't totally belabor this point because I've, I've, I've said it elsewhere. We could point to Exodus and the golden calf where we saw the people are described in the language as though they are cattle themselves. The point is they have become what they have worshipped. Interestingly, if you go back and read the passage, it all happens on a feast day. Now, it's a false feast day. Aaron makes a false altar. He declares a false feast day, and it's on that day as they worship on that false Sabbath that they become like the idol that they worship. Or we could go to Isaiah. Isaiah makes this point all the time. He says God's people are blind. They are dumb. They have no knowledge. And he goes on the next chapter to say, their idols do not see. They do not hear. They have no knowledge. His critique is, you become dumb just like you worship. Your God is not the living God, and you have become just like a hunk of metal. You're dumb and spiritually blind. By contrast, the people of God are conformed more and more to the image of Christ in worship. My answer for, or my question for you today is, are you worshiping on your Sabbath day, the Lord's day? Your sanctification absolutely depends on it. You know, there are many of what we might call extraordinary means of grace. Things like fasting. Good things. Things we should do. And there's oftentimes when you are trying to kill your sin, you have to employ means just like that. John Owen talks about that in The Mortification of Sin. He talks about extraordinary means of killing sin. You know, part of me wonders, brothers and sisters, do we truly always need extraordinary means of grace to kill sin? Or do we just need to give more attention to the ordinary means to kill sin? I wonder if we came on the Lord's Sabbath with more of a heart to worship, more prepared, putting aside other things that are normally lawful that we might worship, taking and drinking deep of the ordinary means of grace, how much less we might need those extraordinary means, though there is a place for them, a time. You may be very diligent and disciplined throughout the week. You might have a really good Bible reading plan. You may have prayer, meditation, and I'm not trying to discourage any of those things. But when it comes to the Lord's Day, you should see that as your sanctification day. I mean, you're supposed to press on every day of the week, but oh, how little do we grow in holiness because we have so, so little regard for the day of holiness. The day where we come into his presence, we're conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Do you worship on the Lord's day? Now, if you're hearing me, you're at the Holy Convocation on the Lord's Day. You are worshiping God on His day, right? You're like, Pastor, preaching to the choir here, right? 
or are you? You know what's so interesting about the Sabbath is it challenges both the idle and the distracted and those who merely worship outwardly. It challenges those who substitute and ultimately worship other things by seeking after those things on that day. It goes after them, and it really challenges them. This is my whole day. It is for worship. But you are not left off the hook easy just because you cease. Because what it demands is far greater than ceasing. It demands worship from the heart. You might fail in either way and still not keep the Sabbath. Christian, would you grow in holiness? Do you have some areas of your life you've been trying to mortify sin for so long? Ah, I just can't keep on, I, I, can't, I can't seem to kill this sin. I even take up extraordinary means of grace. I guarantee you there's probably some deficiency in how you approach the Lord's day. Not saying there's not a time and a place for extraordinary means such as fasting. But if you can't mortify a sin, I'll bet you there's a way in which you are not properly having a due regard for the day of God's sanctification through the means of grace. I pray that you and I would grow in holiness by drinking richly from the source. You know, the Puritans would say, the Sabbath is a day of rest and refreshment. It is a day of ceasing from our labors. On the other hand, it's a day of ceasing from our worldly labors that we might take up our heavenly labors. So much we think, I've done the ceasing. I've done it. We don't lift a finger spiritually. It's a day for holy convocation. It's a rest, but it's a solemn rest. Seek the Lord, brothers and sisters. The last thing that I would point out to you in all this, I think this has a, a particularly powerful application more for us than it did for them back then. But it's that the Sabbath, and particularly the feast days, are connected to Israel's holiness because they serve to remind Israel of God's saving acts of redemption for them. In this chapter, we see this particularly with the Feast of Booths. It was already explained in Exodus, so Moses just kind of skips over it here. But it's not yet, I don't think, been explained with the Feast of Booths. Look at verse 42. It says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And we saw this also in Leviticus 18. If you remember, I said Leviticus 18 is like a miniature Mosaic covenant. It's like the bare bones of a Mosaic covenant um, in, in one chapter. And it starts out, if you remember, I said, with an allusion to the Exodus and being rescued out of Egypt. As I said, that's a very common feature of covenantal language because by alluding to that, God is enjoining his people to keep his covenant. This is why the Ten Commandments start out with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's saying, keep covenant. These are my saving acts by which I redeemed you in covenant. Keep my covenant, therefore. 
should not surprise us then that all throughout the year, God had his people celebrate certain feasts that made them remember and look back upon his saving covenantal acts of redemption so that they might keep covenant. We see this in all kinds of ways. It's, it's in the Passover. You could even say, um, and the Jews, I think there's a case that this is biblical. They said with the Feast of Weeks, it's also connected to the giving of the law because it was at that time that they came to Mount Sinai. And you could track the whole story of the Exodus to the booths and then being into the new land where they now have plants and or trees and crops and they're giving that back to the Lord. It's all meant to rehearse to them God's saving covenantal acts. Part of this is for motivating them. Keep my covenant in light of how good I have been to you in covenant. I would say that that is a huge part for us on the Lord's day. What do we do when we come here? What's the focus? We look at God's saving acts through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ and him crucified. That's the whole point. It's literally standing here before me, his body, his flesh, his blood shed on the cross, all kinds of ways that make us ponder and think of his incarnation, his life, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, especially his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the heart of it. Part of this for us, how this relates to our holiness on the Lord's day, is like Israel, it motivates to keep his covenant in light of his covenant mercies. We're reminded that blood was shed for us to redeem us. We're reminded that flesh was torn, that flesh was pierced, that flesh was taken on by the second person of the Trinity. All of that reminds us of how God accomplished it. And yet, as I said, brothers and sisters, I think for us there's a deeper signification here. Because for us on the Lord's Day, not only are we reminded of God's saving acts in Christ week in and week out through the means of grace, but we furthermore participate in those saving acts, and by that are more conformed to Christ. What I mean by that is these don't merely just give us motivation. We participate in Christ's death, burial, resurrection, as we come and rehearse these things in the word and sacrament, and by doing so, we are made more like Christ. For example, listen to what Paul says of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a picture of the blood of Christ? Well, that's not what he says. Does it not remind us of the blood of Christ? Well, true, but more than that, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Or he says of baptism, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We partake of these acts again and again. Now, this doesn't mean that the sacraments work as the Romanists say they do. 
as we say in Latin, ex opere operata. They just work apart from faith. No, we don't teach that at all. What it does mean is that there is a true sacramental union between the sign and the thing that it signifies, such that to partake of the sign by faith is to participate in the thing that it signifies. When we come on the Lord's Day, we're not just motivated by Christ's death, we are crucified more by faith. We're not just reminded of his resurrection by faith, we have more resurrection life infused into us. Not just examples, but participation. If perhaps, brothers and sisters, again, there's an area of sin that you've been trying to motivate, the thing you need is more of Christ in you. Because all holiness is, is greater conformity to Christ. If you would have more of that, come to drink deeply of the means of grace on the Lord's day. The greatest streams which come, come in corporate worship. Because as I've said, there's certain things that we do here you cannot do in family worship or in your quiet time. This is not just a trickle. This is a great stream from Christ. If you need to mortify sin, you do it here through the means of grace. If you need to be strengthened and enabled, oh, come. Do it here in the means of grace. You know, one area we've talked about in Sunday school as we've been talking about uh, the Sabbath is the great benefit in the need of preparing for the Lord's Day. Preparing for the Lord's Day, especially, I'd say, the night before. Primarily in terms of preparing the heart. I think so often, brothers and sisters, we gain so little from the Lord's Day and the means of grace. When I describe these big streams, you're like, Pastor, sometimes I don't know if I've even drank anything. I feel like just as spiritually thirsty as when I came here. Okay. But I wonder if sometimes that's from a lack of preparation to receive the means of grace. Thomas Boston talks about this. He says, It is true that God may by His sovereign grace catch the unprepared by his word. In other words, God God doesn't need our preparations to do powerful things in us, right? And I'm sure many of us have all experienced times where we come to church, maybe with a bad attitude or something, and oh man, God just really blessed us that day. We left just like, oh, God showed up today, man, right? We say something like that, right? That happened. But he says, typically, the way of preparation is the way in which we have ground to look for good by. God doesn't need our preparations, but he typically uses them. If you would receive more from the means of grace, prepare before you come. Pray. Seek the Lord. Confess to him, Lord, I need a lot of you this week. I need a lot of Christ. I have a lot of sin to mortify. I need a lot of enabling. I need you through the means of grace. You will receive the day of sanctification. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, there is a direct correlation between your personal holiness and how you keep the Lord's day. It's not the only thing, right? Don't don't misunderstand me. It's not the only thing, but I would say it's the main thing. 
So, so much time, so many times, I think if someone's struggling to mortify a sin, man, there's some kind of a disconnect going on there with their Lord's Day worship. Yeah, you need to grow in your personal devotions Monday through Friday, but the biggest means of grace comes on that day. There's some kind of a disconnect. I would encourage you to rest on this day. There are many things which are clamoring for your attention. Put them off and worship God. Your soul needs it. There are many other things that are not your job, but they're also fun. But you still need to put them off as well. We talked about in Sunday school, and I love this analogy, the Puritans called the Sabbath the market day of the soul. It's the market day of the soul. Now, part of that, you have to remember, is that market day for them was like a whole day. It's not like when the kids are napping and like you run to Aldi's real quick and come back. That kind of misses the whole analogy. A modern analogy would be like going to Costco, right? Costco's more of an ordeal. When my wife goes to Costco, I think she texts some of the ladies, anybody need anything from Costco? And someone's like, I do. Why? Because it's an ordeal, right? At least more so. That's a little bit of what the market day was. It was the day of the week. Normally, you had to travel. If you lived on a farm, like most people, to go there, do your buying and selling, you had to, to have some thought beforehand. What do I need this next week? You spend the whole day. Puritans would say, that's what the Sabbath day is for the soul. It's a day spent taking heed of everything we need for the soul. Don't be distracted by anything else. I've shared this several times in Sunday school, and I'll close with this. It's from Dr. Renahan. When I was in seminary, I would still do homework on the Lord's Day, and I remember he, he exhorted us when he was teaching on this in class, and he said, man, I would encourage you, don't, don't do homework on the Lord's Day. And he said this, and it's always stuck with me. He said, I've never ceased from work and sought the Lord on the Lord's Day and regretted it. Never regretted it. I've never gotten to Monday and been like, oh, how foolish I was that I didn't, you know, stress more. I have worked on the Lord's Day and regretted it. Have no regrets. Seek the Lord. It is his special day for worship. Amen? Let's pray. (coughs) Father, how good you are to us that you give us a whole day of resting and worshiping you. And yet, Lord, so often how, <laughs> how sinful our hearts are, Lord, that we often, so, so often just want to barely get away with the minimum, Lord. We want to come to church, but we don't want to give you our hearts. Oh, Father God, we confess this is sinful. Would you help us to delight in you, Lord? Would you help us to delight in your Sabbath, Father God? Father, would we keep it holy? And would we keep it holy not in an outward way, not in a pharisaical way, but primarily with the heart? Father, I pray that we would put off all other things and just delight in you. In Christ's name we pray.